Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about Donnybrook, a 2018 film that I watched on Hulu, but is available from multiple sources. Returning to the show is production designer Michael Perry, who last joined us to talk about his work on Promising Young Woman. Michael, nice to see you again. Nice to see you again. Now, warning for listeners, today's conversation may contain spoilers. Michael, sort of set some context. Let's give people an outline of the story of Donnybrook. It's a very simple premise, but it's actually a real, this is a real story that happened many years before and became a book. And it's about a, um, there's no other word to use than hillbilly because they call themselves hillbillies. But in uh, Northern Kentucky, um, guy did a couple of tours in Iraq, did a tour in Afghanistan, came home and married his high school sweetheart who already had two kids from two other fathers, but he was in love with. So they married and he could not find his way out of poverty. They lived in a terrible trailer park. It was, uh, the wife was starting down a road of drugs. And his goal was there was a bare knuckle fight once a year. I think it was a $10,000 buy-in. And the winner gets $100,000. And in his mind, that $100,000 will save his life. It will change everything. They'll get out of poverty. Everything will happen. And you're like, okay. So it becomes this tale, which we wrapped up in a trip down the river because this place was hard to get to. And he ends up following a follow of the cops. But it, it sort of becomes the, you know, part of darkness trail. Is as he's going down, he meets some odd people. He goes further down. He gets to the thing and it's, it's chaos. It's the apocalypse. And he has to fight in the ring. And he ends up fighting his, not knowing it, nemesis, played by Frank Grillo, who finally gets to play as evil a person as I think Frank has always wanted to play. <laughs> <laughs> and so we've got uh, yeah, Frank Grillo plays uh, Chainsaw Angus, is that character. And, then, and Jamie Bell is our, uh, our hero character, if you will, uh, Jarhead Earl. Uh, referencing his time in the in the Marines. So, Michael, for folks who might not be familiar, briefly give an idea of what the production designer brings to a story like this. This is interesting because this would be the opposite of Promising Young Woman, where my designs are right in your face. So this is much more naturalistic. The idea here is, even though you bring some odd things into it, the audience doesn't go, oh, look at that. It's a quiet design in a lot of ways to the very end. It's very naturalistic. It looks very real, almost looks like a documentary. I tried to give it, like if you went into some poor person's trailer home, you know, the cigarette butts, like that trailer had nothing in it. So you brought the life, you bring everything to it, but the whole thing is not to be noticed. At that point, I approached it very differently than I had anything before. I went with the beats of the script, talking with the director where the beats were, which are moments that are important that you make put an emphasis on. I usually don't worry about those, but in this particular case I did. And on a wall, I laid out the, like a, on, you know, little index card, the 
C number and what the beat was supposed to be. And then I ran those all down the road. And then instead of putting sketches or notes or things, I just put photographs I found, paintings I found that emphasized that. So it became like this wall that I could walk and talk myself through of going, okay, this is where we want this feeling. This is where we want that feeling. And then how do I bring a set to it that then does it? So it was, honestly, it was a little like painting. On its own, it was just a couple of brush strokes, but as a whole, it gave a complete picture. It was a very different way for me to work. I said I did have a, this first time I made a playlist, which was lots and lots of Led Zeppelin, a lot of Joy Division, Sex Pistols, and um, Black Sabbath. I felt that encompassed all the chaos that was there. It was a very headbanger kind of <laughs> kind of thing. And is all of this design, sort of the the setting you're doing with the pictures and and the the, the music playlist you're listening to, is this before you were actually on the ground? I mean, how did this inform the original approach versus what ended up making it on screen? Well, the the playlist definitely, because um, after I got the job, I think I had like a week before it started. So I was here. So I put the playlist together and then I would read that with the scripts and I do a second playlist. I do pulls from what I did so that they fell at the point where in the script, something changes or something happens. So, you know, you have Ozzy Osbourne going and then suddenly you have anarchy in the USA, (laughs) although the UK, but it was that kind of thing where, you know, I just sort of felt there was a, a very different kind of, I mean, I could have listened to Leonard Skinner or, you know, you could have done all that kind of thing. But I felt that this was like, a, you know, like a right now moment. That's what Jarhead would have listened to in the Marines. And that's what, you know, Joy Division is go, always going on in Frank Grillo's head. So the, yeah, so then I did it and then we hit the ground. And usually when we get there, so we were shooting maybe 20 minutes north of Cincinnati, which is prime Midwest with all its beauty and all of its sadness, we're there. And the director and I started to change our outlook about this movie by really meeting these people. And the place it really, really changed was in the movie, there are crack houses, right? Which are abandoned houses that are building stuff and they're doing it till the heat comes on and then you move to the next one. So in my head, we're going to have maybe one or two houses. I'm going to have to screw them up and we'll see. We had easily 15 to choose from. They had all just been walked away because of the economic situation. There was one where they had were having breakfast and they made the decision to leave while the place were on the table. They just took their clothes and left. Everything was there. And that's when we started to go, yeah, this isn't a cartoon. This is really happening. And it, Trump had just been elected. And people truly believed, truly believed that finally the factory that's been closed for 15 years so I don't even know that you could get it up and running. It's a two-mile factory. And these guys, have, you know, 
the, the one thing that really surprised me is the American dream has always been, I'm going to make my life as good as I can, but so that my kids will have it better. But these guys, people that would be my, like my father and, and then me, they went, hey, kids, drop out of school at 15. You can start working on the line. You're making 60 bucks an hour and, you know, you can get a powerboat, a ski boat, a house and whatever. So there's not even there's not even an educated class there. So when that all went away, it really went away. I was just looking last night in Zwillow. We shot a place called Middletown, Ohio, right between Cincinnati and um, Ak- Akron, I think. What's his name? J.V. Vance, who wrote Hillbilly Elegy. That's the town that he wrote it in. I just looked at Anzuelo last night and, you know, there are places for $7,000 there, you know, three bedroom homes for 165,000. So the collapse hit that place very, very hard. So then we decided not to take such a cartoony thing to the end of the movie. Now, Michael, that's an interesting take on that. So it is feel throughout the film that there's an empathy for these folks and the situation they're in. And I'm curious how that is captured in production design. Like what choices do you make differently with that empathy, avoiding sort of the cartoon approach? It was a delicate balance. A lot of times a set would be up and I left myself at least a day. So all the sets had to be ready a day before. And then I would walk through and I would edit. If anything seemed to me that, you know, was pushing it one way, one way or the other. I wanted to be as neutral as possible till the end of the movie where I take a stance, but walking through the house, walking through that trailer park, which was basically two different parks, you know, just being careful about how many pink flamingos or garden gnomes you do, how ragged does stuff look? Not from caring, not for neglect, but literally because that's the only coat they've had for 15 years. So that, it was a re- super fine line. It was a super fine. And at the same time, you kind of have to, these are almost archetypes. You have the good Jarhead who's trying to be a better angel. And you have Grillo who just sinks down to the worst act possible. We wanted it to have the feel sort of of a, a Greek myth tale. I don't know. I, I felt we did succeed with it, but. Well, talk to me some about the specific sets that captured those beats you talked about. One of them was the uh, the trailer part. We saw five trailer parts. One of them had so many burnt out from being actual, you know, crack houses. So you just go along and there were just sort of like these burnt metal X trailers. But we, we, we don't think people would believe it, you know, but it was, that's what it was. The second one was, I'm sure the next week they started burning trailers. But that week when we shot, we didn't. But the one at the Burnt one had this fabulous little playground. And it had sort of nothing around it. And it just had a spring. So I put a horse on that spring. So the only thing in that playground is a squeaking little horse. And that was like, everything's rusted away. Nobody ever had money to bring it back. And it was just that little girl sitting there going back and forth. And I I think that captured it really well for Jarhead because, you know, he's very sympathetic and whatever, but you also need to know, you know, he was in the Marines for a lot of years and he's not 
he's going there to win and he may, and he has a chance. So the whole thing with the, him constantly carrying the heavy bag everywhere he went with it, you know, and how it's a patched, which means he's punched through it at some point. And that, you know, those are the two, those are the two things that really stick in my mind that sadness, like a, uh, uh, Crutzen photograph where it's just a big landscape with this little girl. Yeah. And then, you know, a lot of the road stuff, the, the one bar we went, um, that was as real as it got, you know, it was basically a biker bar. They couldn't have been nicer. They were like, they were lovely. I knew they would kill us, but it they were lovely. Um, and that was mostly my experience too. They're meeting people who would absolutely kill you for your shoes. But in this particular case, they were nice to us. Now, the film culminates at the Donnybrook, where the fight's going to take place. And mm-hmm. I really like the parallels you drew sort of with that Apocalypse Now approach, where there is this chaos of encampment outside that is also really important to the story. But we have descended into the heart of darkness at this point. Absolutely. So there were a couple of things about that. Years ago, I was shooting a movie in Chicago. and. Um, the Grateful Dead had come by. They had a three-day thing. And I walked past it as it was ending. And the total chaos of these guys doing acid for three days in their tents, the stuff that was strewn about. And it was a great image. You know, and I, I kept you know going on the web and finding third day of dead concerts. And that was plastered everywhere. I also had a very weird experience. I did a movie called um, Killer Elite, which was mostly in Australia, we shot in the UK, and then we shot in Jordan. And when I was in Jordan, we went way up by the Syrian border where things have just started to kick off, right? Refugees have just started coming in. And we went into this little town. My scout who was with me was like, hey, let's get some oranges, which by the way, they have the best orange juice in Jordan, bar none. <laughs> um, so I went, we went toward a little stall where the guy had all the oranges and the squeezer and he's, he's standing there. And as we went there, I looked to my right and the next stall was selling machine guns, grenades, you know, just war implements right next to the guy selling orange juice. And to me, that's always been an image of like, that's a perfect image of the end of the world. That's what it is, you know, where oranges and guns have the exact same value. So I did throw that in there. It's not, it's, you can't quite see it, but it is right there. There are certain things that we did on the end of it that in some ways almost negate what we did before. But the one thing we were adamant about was no Confederate flags, no Nazi flags, no red magna hats. You have to have sympathy when some of these guys go in the ring. You have to know what's going to motivate them because it's a brutal fight. And we wanted to feel you to feel like we went to the end of the earth there. Now, there is something I did in there, which I have been shocked that I didn't get criticism for. And I think it's because people just didn't want to see what I did, which is I took two trailers on end, put them on the other side of the lake and burned them like the Twin Towers. So there's a scene where the American anthem is being sung by a woman who's smoking and out past her with all these guys in this barbed wire cage. And then the Twin Towers are burning in the back. And I thought, that's the most hellish you know, image I could ever put up. And uh, I kind of talked everybody into it. It actually came to me in a dream. <laughs> well, it's definitely a, a powerful image there. And you can see how all of these elements 
have to come together to really make these scenes work. Like nobody can really carry the other departments for something like this. No, it was, yeah, no, it was, it was definitely one of those things where it, when I look at like clips, I'm like, I don't really even know how you pull a trailer to get a real full measure of what the film is. It's, it's literally brushstroke, brushstroke, brushstroke on all of our parts with an amazing DP, amazing costumes, amazing actors. I mean, Martha was unbelievable. She was terrifying. You know, you just never knew, uh, Quigley, you would never, you never know when, what she was going to do at times because she was so into the character. It was cut. Some of this, watching some of those scenes, you actually, you, you sort of welled up in tears because of the sort of pathetic nature of what had happened. Talk to me about the actual filming. You mentioned how Frank Grill got to play as evil as maybe he's ever wanted. <laughs> Are you suggesting he had a good time with it? I mean, in other words, what was the atmosphere on set? You know, it was weird. It, it was not an unhappy set at all. And that, that is always, you know, I don't think I've really shot up like a straight up comedy. I have a feeling like people will be like really angry and pissed off and not having a good time. But on this, we had, we had a great time. It was, a, it was very exciting because we were definitely all pushing ourselves to go to the first end of what we could be doing. The DP one day said to me, he was like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, a, I come from out of the punk era. I, I kind of love chaos. And I was like, well, I come out of the punk era too, but I like taming chaos. And, you know, somewhere between the two is what we got. Tim's amazing, dude. Tim Sutton, the director, he's the best person to hang out. You know, you could sit down, drink a beer and talk about anything. And Tim had a better point of view about whatever it is you brought up. He's just a super smart, super nice and incredibly funny guy. So Frank would laugh. Just like, from what I understand, it's not an easy thing to get Grillo to laugh. Um, <laughs> he was pretty incredulous, you know, because there is a fair size difference between him and Jamie. But, you know, Jamie's fighting skills comes to the fact that he's a professional dancer. So he just choreographed the fight for himself. And then Frank was taking a little bit out of his element because, you know, he recommended a stunt guy. You know, it's like, well, he, he knows what stunt guys are going to be able to do. And they showed us their version of that fight. And the director said, I'm going to fire all of you. I'm going to go hire MMA fighters or real gang guys because this is not a Kung Fu movie. And he showed him what we had been using was there's these insane videos of Russian gangs. And they did exactly that. They lined up and then they go crashing into each other and half of them immediately fall down. I mean, half of them are knocked out right away. So Frank had to get used to being more of a brawler than, you know, I don't think there's a martial art he doesn't know. So that was good. I mean, that was kind of, you know, he was a little off his uh, stoicism. Well, I really enjoyed the film and how it came together. But interestingly, you mentioned it, Michael, is what had me go find it. I was not familiar with the film when it came out. And I'd like to get your take on the film's reception. Well, here's the thing. In films... The thing that can kill you out, knock you out faster than anything is a New York Times review. So this film was picked to be in competition in Toronto. There's only 10 films in the whole world that go into competition there. It got rave reviews from the people that were right there who saw it. Tim called me, he's all excited. We're going to South by Southwest and we won, I can't remember what award, but we won an award. 
And then the New York Times review came out and said that we made a clownish movie about horrible people and we didn't represent them in the evil way that the New York Times thought we should, you know, because the New York Times makes such great movies. So the choice for us was to stay. If we put a magna hat on everybody, threw up a Nazi and a Confederate flag, New York Times would have loved us. It's like, oh, those are the bad guys. You know, that's the way that worked. And it's like, you know, that's that's part of the problem with the dialogue. I don't agree with a damn thing any of these people do, you know, but I have sympathy for or empathy for, you know, a destroyed way of life. And it is. I mean, the town of Middleton, they had a theater, movie theater there with 1,200 seats. That's the Chinese man. They filled it up from 1930 on. They remodeled it, which is kind of very cool. They remodeled it when uh, Cleopatra came out. But, you know, they offered it to me a dollar if I would clean out all the asbestos. That's, that's, a, that's a big fall. That's a big fall. Well, I think the movie does show that empathy and a real understanding of the challenges uh, uh, faced and, and a real empathy for, for its characters. But with a bad review and then it uh, sounds like a limited release, not a lot of people got a chance to see it. No. And it, you know, I mean, usually you when you're in competition at Toronto, it's a big, big fanfare. But we didn't condemn. That's what our problem was. We didn't condemn. We showed it. We didn't agree with it, but we showed it. And that's always Tim. That's Tim in all of Tim's movies before that. That is definitely a theme of his. He did this movie called Dark Knight, which is all about the shooting that happened in uh, Colorado when Batman was played. You know, it's horrifying because you see all the different points that maybe things could have gone differently because he just goes there. And then the end of the movie is him walking into the fire exit at the movie theater and stops, stops there. And you're like, what happened to that person and those people beforehand? And then, you know, it's like, you know, that Jarhead isn't going to get the hundred thousand dollars and take himself out of poverty because it's not enough. He's never going to run far enough away. You just, you know, it's just, oh, that's. It's interesting to think that a more commercial film, honestly, probably wouldn't stand the test that this one does. But this is a film worth seeing. And so I think people can find it. As I said, I saw it on Hulu. And uh, yeah, it's worth seeing. I think uh, it's, a, it's a great movie, Michael. I'm really glad you recommended it to me. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was, uh, it was definitely a labor of love. And it was one of the rare experiences in your life where you suddenly think you know the story. And the reality is everyone's point of view changed. That's a good lesson for a lot of things. On that mm-hmm. note, we'll call it a wrap. Thanks for being here, Michael. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Listeners, I appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info at our website, blowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. You'll also find past episodes and links to all of our social media. Michael, where are we going to see your work next? Uh, next, October 31st on Netflix. It's obviously a Halloween movie, a lot like The Goonies. That's the road it travels. We'll take that as a teaser. We'll keep an eye out for it, Michael. You you seem excited about it. That's going to be something worth seeing. All right. My closing credits to the regular crew. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again for more.